Ezekiel, in a nutshell, is a pretty big nut. <laughs> but we will attempt to cover the entire book. Now, some of you will be better at remembering dates than others. The only date I will ask you to try to remember is the date, the fall of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar, when the city was destroyed. 586 or some other dates, 587, it varies according to who you read, but 586, 587 BC, that is the key date. And Ezekiel is prophesying either side of those, that, those years, the fall of Jerusalem. So that will give you some idea of the structure. And we'll begin, though, in the year 622 or thereabouts. It's always difficult to be absolutely precise. 622, Josiah is the king in Judah. He's the last good king. The four kings who come after him are a disaster. And Zedekiah is the one who is the last king. He's taken captive under Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah is in Jerusalem in 622. Uh, he is prophesying. He's begun his ministry. And he would remain in that city and in the surrounding part of the country all the way through after 586-87. But in 622, in the house of a man called Buzi, B-U-Z-I-Z-I, as you would say, there was great celebration. A male child had been born, and his name was Ezekiel. May God strengthen, or God strengthens, is the meaning of his name. And he was born into a priestly family, a Levitical priestly family. But he was not only a priest, as we will see, he became also a prophet. When the prophecy of Ezekiel begins, though, he is not in Jerusalem. If you turn to chapter 1, I'll read various portions of Ezekiel and a larger portion part of the way through in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel chapter 1, it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Chebar, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kibar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Now there were a number of captivities before the total disaster in 586. And this is one of them, the fifth year of Jehoiachin's uh, captivity. A group of people have been led captive, taken to Babylon, and among them was this 30-year-old man, this priest, Ezekiel. There, in Babylon, of all places, but in Babylon, 
there he sees an overwhelming vision of God. It's a strange vision because God is enthroned, it seems, upon a, a mobile chariot-like throne. It's movable. And he sees the God in his glory. And he falls on his face when he heard the voice of God speaking to him. There at the end of chapter 1, verse 28, like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. There are three principal visions. This is the first. The second is in chapters uh, 8 through 11 uh, when he sees the glory of the Lord depart out of the temple. And then the third vision is in chapters 40 to 48, where essentially the glory of the Lord returns to Jerusalem and the temple. I want to try and cover with you four things from this book. It is fairly easy to divide it up. I'm not sure I could do the same with Isaiah. That would be a different, uh, a different thing altogether. But here we can cover four things. Firstly, Ezekiel is the mouthpiece of God. That is essential that we grasp that. He is the mouthpiece of God. He's a priest, but then he is commissioned and sent as a prophet to the captives in Babylon. Having seen the Lord on his chariot-like mobile throne, the Spirit of God entered him. We read in chapter 2 and verse 2. And he is told in verse 7, you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And he eats the scroll that God gives to him. And then he is equipped to bring God's message, God's word to these people. He comes then with a God-given authority. He is being called. He is equipped by the Spirit of God. And it means whatever you read then in Ezekiel, even if you don't understand it, and there are parts that are hard to understand, whatever you read it is God saying, these are my words, my words. And more so than that, he says in chapter 2 and verse 5, they will know that a prophet has been among them, someone who is the mouthpiece of God. They will know, they will realize it, they won't be able to escape it. But one phrase complete, continues to appear throughout the 39 chapters in particular, the first 39 chapters, it's the phrase, they shall know that I am the Lord. 
It occurs 60 plus times throughout those chapters, on average, nearly two a chapter. It's a, it's, a, it's a way of saying they will know me in judgment, on the one hand, or they will know me in blessing. But they will know that the Lord has spoken, one way or the other. And again, there is a phrase that keeps on recurring. Uh, there are similar ones. They shall know that I am the Lord. Uh, I am the Lord. And then particularly, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Now that phrase occurs 360 times or so in the Old Testament. And a third of them, that's 120 of them, are found in Ezekiel. So you begin to get the message. This is a message from God through Ezekiel. He is the mouthpiece of God. And that statement, I am the Lord. I remind you of Exodus and Moses, the burning bush. I am who I am, says the Lord. And he goes on then to say that Pharaoh and Egypt, they will know that I am the Lord, but in judgment. But you will know that I am the Lord in blessing. I will save you. I'll redeem you. You will escape out of Egypt. Ezekiel then is a messenger, a mouthpiece of God. He is calling them back to God their Redeemer, their covenant Lord, the I Am of the days of Moses. He is a watchman. I think that's probably a, a passage that you would say, well, I remember that in Ezekiel, I understand that. He's a watchman on the walls. He is to give a warning. You find that in Ezekiel 3, and then he's recommissioned after the fall of Jerusalem in Ezekiel chapter 33. He called to account. He must give an account. If he doesn't deliver God's message, then the blood of the people will be upon him. But if they refuse to hear what he has to say, then it will be their responsibility and they will be called to account. So, here is Ezekiel. He is the mouthpiece of God. The second thing that we want to consider is this. As God's mouthpiece he says to Judah, to the remaining tribes of Israel, you will know the Lord in severe judgment. Now in Exodus, it was Pharaoh who knew the Lord in severe judgment. Now it is the people of God. Because they are no longer effectively the people of God. They are a rebellious house. If you turn to chapter 5 of Ezekiel, chapters 4 and 5, you get a, a series of enacted prophecies. I want to look with you briefly at chapter 5 and verse 9, God says there, and I will do among you, he's speaking to these people of God who rebelled, I will do among you what I have never done and the like of which I will never do again. Why? Because of all your abominations. This is going to be a unique event. It's a terrifying judgment. 
If you go back to verse 1, he says, You, son of man, take a sharp sword, take it as a barber's razor, pass it over your head and your beard, then take a scales to weigh and divide the, her, the hair. You shall burn with fire one-third in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are finished. Then you shall take one-third, strike it around with the sword, and then one-third you will scatter in the wind. I will draw out a sword after them. You go down to verse 11. There it is explained. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things, with all your abominations, therefore I will also diminish you. And then these very strong, severe words... My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. Something must be seriously wrong for the Lord to say such a thing as that. Verse 12 then says, one third, going back to this enacted uh, prophecy, one third of you shall die of the pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. One third of you shall fall by the sword all around you. And I will scatter another third to all the winds and I will draw out a sword after them. And then notice verse 13. Thus shall my anger be spent. and I will cause my fury to rest upon them. I will be avenged. And here's the phrase. And then they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I have spent my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a waste and a reproach among the nations that are all around you in the sight of all who pass by. So it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson, and an astonishment to the nations that are all around you when I execute judgment among you in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken. They will know the Lord in judgment and much of chapters 1 to 32 are in that vein there are shafts of light where there is a hope of restoration but there's a few verses and then it's back to judgment again right the way throughout chapters 1 to 32 1 to 24 are God's judgments against Judah and Jerusalem chapters uh, 25 to 32, are against the nations. There are seven of them, which is usually the number of completeness. Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Tyre, Sidon, they are all going to know the Lord in judgment. I'm not going to comment any more length on the nations, but it's, it's, it's a message of judgment. And you have to think back to the days of Abraham. Whoever blessed Abraham would be blessed. Whoever cursed Abraham would be cursed. And this is part of the curse of Abraham. The curse of God that is spoken of in those verses. This chapter then is a devastating chapter. Pestilence, famine, sword, scattered. Divine anger, divine fury, divine revenge. Because of the abomination and the desolations. You go on to chapter 8 
and you read of the awful abominations in the temple. They barely, you know, when you, when you read them, they shock you, but they're intended to shock you because sin is a shocking thing. It's an awful thing. And these people have grown very light-hearted and thinking, oh, the Lord will never cast us out of Jerusalem. We're the chosen people of God after all. This is the temple. This is where God dwells. We're safe. And there were a lot of false prophets who were saying precisely that. Jeremiah was a lone voice in Jerusalem. There were plenty of people who were prepared to prop up this crumbling city of Jerusalem. So we read then in this second vision that the glory of the Lord departs. Chapter 10, verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. And when they went out, the wheels were beside them and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of the Lord of the God of Israel was above them. So the glory of the Lord departs. Priests, prophets, kings, fathers, mothers, children, the rottenness went right the way through the entire city of Jerusalem. Those kings that followed Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin and Zedekiah, they were a disaster. Babylon was effectively the sword of the Lord in judgment. These people were hard-hearted, they were rebellious. Sin was widespread. Unfaithfulness, rebellion, idolatry, immorality. And there they were saying, doesn't matter. We will never be destroyed. And God says again and again and again, you are very wrong, you are very mistaken, you are rebellious. And there's the problem, isn't it? Human sinfulness. It doesn't change. It's universal. It's universal. Why don't people become Christians when they hear the gospel? Same reason. Why didn't Israel hear, Judah hear, the warnings? Why do people just shrug their shoulders and say, what are, you, what are you getting all heated up about? I don't believe in the judgment of God. You're making a big fuss about nothing. You're morbid. Nothing really has changed. Ezekiel is sent to bring this severe warning then to this nation. And those of us who are preachers are also called to proclaim this message of judgment. It cannot be escaped. We're called to convince people, to rebuke people, to exhort people, to warn people so they see their sin. Someone sitting here this morning, still not a Christian? I've had so many people say to me in the past, all you do is make me feel unhappy and uncomfortable. And I say to them, good, 
Because that's what it's intended to do. If you're not a Christian, you are in a dangerous place. You are under the, the wrath and the judgment of God. You need to be saved from your sins. And one of the amazing things as you read through these early chapters of, of Ezekiel, one of the things that God says, despite this terrible state of affairs, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I have no pleasure. And here he is speaking of his fury, his anger, and his judgment. But he says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that you turn that you turn from your sin, repent of your sin. That's always God's way. Why is he warning them in this way? So that they will repent and come back and turn back to him. But they will not. They dig their heels in. They're entrenched in their sin. If you're a Christian reading through these chapters, you may get a bit weary reading chapter after chapter of judgment. But see, you need to hear these things. I need to hear these things because we become dangerously complacent about our sin. We become careless. And we need chapters like this to make us hate sin all the more and love God himself and love Jesus Christ all the more. You who love the Lord hate evil. That should be our response to these things. We should be shocked. We should be horrified. There are some terrible chapters, some terrible descriptions here in this book, but it's intended to shake us out of our complacency. I know preachers who won't read certain sections publicly of Ezekiel. I don't share that view, but I can understand why, because it's, it's, it's an awful thing. It's an awful picture. Well, let me move on. Because thirdly, God's mouthpiece goes on to say, now you will also know the Lord in blessing, in salvation. The shafts of light that are found in the first 20, 30 chapters now become rays of sunshine like midday. Here is the gospel, if you like, according to Ezekiel. After the surgical knife, it's time to close the wound and to, to heal. Let me read to you part of chapter 36. That is a good chapter for us to read this morning in this brief survey because it looks back and then it looks forward. It reminds them of where they have been in terms of their sin and then what is going to happen and why it's going to happen. Verse 16, chapter 36. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, that's a favorite phrase the Lord uses to address Ezekiel. Verse 17, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore I poured out my fury on them, for the blood they had shed on the land and for their idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed 
through the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of the Lord, <coughs> the, when they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Now you realize he's talking in the past tense. So we are now after 586, 587. All right? But read on. Verse 21. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. And I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I, give, I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Those are amazing words after the hammer blow of 586. After all the severe judgments, the Lord says, this is not the end. This is not the end of you. I haven't stopped working. The door of hope has been opened. And now it is being declared in a most remarkable way. These people have listened to prophet after prophet after prophet, false prophets. They may have been in the position where they've given up all hope. You can't trust anybody. But Ezekiel is speaking God's words to them. And he's drawing them back to God. And telling them what God will yet do. We marvel at God's love and God's grace towards them. He promises them basically new life. We'll come to what this is promising. But 
remember and take note. Why does God do this? It's not simply for their sake. It's his reputation that is at stake. My name, my honor, my glory. You have defaced that. You've virtually destroyed that. But I'm not going to stand by idle. I'm going to work in your midst and I'm going to get glory for my name through you. Why are you a Christian? It's because God is determined to get glory through you. Why are you part of a church of Jesus Christ? Very same reason. That's the way God gets glory to his name by building his church. But I'm jumping ahead of myself a little here. But you can see again and again in this chapter, God is determined to have a people for himself. He's investing in them as the people of God, even though they've rebelled against him. He is determined. He will bring them back to their own land. In a moment we'll see there'll be one king among them. But he's going to renew them. Here in chapter 36... As you read those words from verse 25 onwards, when was that fulfilled? It wasn't fulfilled in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. It certainly wasn't fulfilled in the days of the last prophet, Malachi. You're looking ahead, aren't you, here? Ezekiel is looking ahead now to the new covenant, to the pouring out of the Spirit of God. There are phrases here that are picked up by the Lord Jesus in John chapter 3 when he spoke to Nicodemus plainly declaring that he needed to be born from above, born of the Spirit of God. This is the regenerating power of the Spirit of God that makes sinners new, gives them new life. Yes, it's the love and the grace of God poured out on an undeserving people. And God is doing it for his own sake. But that is the only way this problem of sin is ever going to be resolved. God must do it. And that is what is being declared here in a most remarkable way. A spiritual rebirth. Christ and the pouring out of his spirit is being spoken of here in prophetic terms. You turn back a chapter, chapter 30, a couple of chapters, chapter 34. There's a chapter there that speaks of the, the rotten shepherds who've misled the flock the false shepherds, prophets, priests, kings. But then in verse 11, God says, Thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. Who does that remind you of? <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. The great shepherd of the sheep. And then if you go on, I haven't time to take, uh, read all of that, the rest of that chapter. But if you turn over to verse uh, 20. Therefore thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep. I'll not comment on that at the moment. Because you push with the side and shoulder and so on and so forth. But then notice verse 23. I will establish one shepherd over them. And he shall feed them. And who's that going to be? My servant David. Wait a minute, David's been dead 
for 500 years. But who is David's greatest son? Who is descended from David and Abraham? It's our Lord Jesus Christ. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, a prince among them. And I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them. And cause wild beasts to cease from the land. They will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. It's a great picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's one other famous, I think nearly everybody would know that, in chapter 37. The dry bones. And I'm not going to sing for you. (laughs) The dry bones. It's a picture of resurrection, life. So there's regeneration. There is restoration. There's a new king. There's a shepherd. There are the people of God who are going to be restored to their land. But God is motivated by the fact that he will have a people for himself. And that is the wonder of this book. God refuses to abandon his promises and his covenant and the people that he has made for himself. He goes right back, of course, to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, that first promise. He goes back to the promise of Abraham that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then there is one who comes, Abraham's seed. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there are the promises that God made to David when he was alive. An everlasting kingdom, an everlasting throne. Who sits on that throne now? It is the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Ezekiel is speaking of here, then in these chapters. This is what God is going to do. It was never fulfilled in the Old Testament. Ezra and Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, they did a great job. (laughs) They didn't live to see these things happen though. But God was working. He raised up an Ezra. He raised up a Nehemiah. He raised up a Haggai and a Zechariah. He put a, one of the exiles in Babylon, Daniel, who said some amazing things to Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. There was even a lady, Esther, in the Persian kingdom. This kind of change that took place, only God could make that happen. At the end of the day, only God can save sinners. Only God can build the church of his son, Jesus Christ. Here is comfort for us. Here is our hope. It's in God and in God alone. Well, there's a fourth and last thing, and I think I'll be able to cover it in time. The fourth thing, as God's mouthpiece, he prophesies, he prophesies of the final triumph of God's purposes. That's in chapters 35 to 48. Uh, sorry, not 35, 38 to 48. Wrong, wrong section. 38 to 39, mysterious chapters, a lot of 
ink has been spilt on Gog and Magog, where do they occur again? Revelation. Gog and Magog, the might of Gog and Magog, they are the enemies of the Lord and of his people. And the Lord will overthrow them and destroy them utterly and completely. These invaders, they will come. There'll be a massive conflict, but they'll be removed. I haven't time to go into the details, but it's, it makes some reading. God will overthrow them. Their bodies will be scattered on the mountains as prey for wild beasts. There is the final judgment upon the enemies of God. The final judgment. That's what Revelation is about, isn't it? Some years ago, there was a commentary, very brief commentary written by a man who was in All Souls Langham Place. And uh, he had had a young person, I think it was a young man, came to him, young convert, and said to him, I've just been reading the book of Revelation. And he thought, goodness me, what on earth is he going to make of it? He said, it's very simple, really. The lamb wins. So he called his book, The Lamb Wins. And that's what Ezekiel is essentially saying here. This is Ezekiel's version, if you like, if I may put it this way, of Revelation. And the triumph of God's purpose. He will overthrow all his enemies. And then, of course, he will establish a new Jerusalem. And who dwells in the new Jerusalem? God is there. How does this prophecy end? Do you know? You know how the last verse ends? Chapter 48 and verse 33. Verse 5. All the way around shall be 18,000 cubits. That's the size of this vast place, this city. And the name of the city? From that day shall be the Lord is there. The Lord is there. Revelation 21. God will dwell among his people. He will tabernacle with them. No more death, no more pain, no more sorrow. All those who are immoral, unbelieving, cast out. The beautiful city of God. Those nations will know the Lord is God and the people of God will know the Lord is their God. He will dwell again among them. Chapter 43, the glory of the Lord returns. Wonderful picture. Now this cha- these chapters of, well, there are some who are persuaded that it will happen literally. This city, this temple, and the land will be restored. It just doesn't fit all the dimensions that are given, they're not a blueprint for a literal building. This is God saying, in effect, I have a perfect plan. I'm going to reestablish worship, the worship of me in my temple. I'm going to come and dwell permanently among you. And you see the whole thing is in an orderly fashion. It's a little bit like the numbering of the tribes around the tabernacle 
in the, in, in the book of Numbers. They're orderly. It's all laid out in orderly fashion. But you can't take it literally. If you work it all out, apparently, I, I haven't done this, but I've been told, reading the, reading the commentary or two, if you do it literally and measure it all out, the temple is way outside the city. It just doesn't fit. It's not intended to fit. It's a picture. It's a picture. It's a symbol of heaven that is yet to come. It's a priestly picture of heaven. It's an Old Testament picture of heaven. But God is there. A new temple. Restored to the land, the priests, the people, and above all, God. Christ. The Lamb. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Lamb of God. Revelation 19, he's the one who's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He rides in triumph. And then all the enemies are scattered. False beasts, prophets, Gog, Magog, and then Revelation 21 and 22. A wonderful picture. And that's an encouragement to us as I conclude this morning. The enemies of God will do whatever they are allowed to do. And they are a real threat, but they can never overcome the Lamb. And they can never overcome you who believe and trust in Christ. You are on the victory side. doesn't make you casual and, well, we don't have to do anything then. No, we have to fight till the very end. But we know that we shall not be overthrown. Nothing is ever going to stand in the way of the purpose of God. And that's the message from Genesis 3.15 right the way through the prophets into the New Testament and into the book of Revelation. Ultimately, you believe and you're trusting in Jesus Christ. You're trusting in the God who's made these wonderful promises. You will ultimately enjoy the perfection of the new heavens and the new earth. Free from sin. Free from death. All the redeemed of the Lord will be there from the least to the greatest and there will be eternal joy and contentment in Christ. It's all there in Ezekiel. You'll have to read through Ezekiel now and you'll have to say, well, maybe he didn't get it all in the nutshell. <laughs> but you, you read it through. I think I've given you the main drift of the book and I hope you will read it with greater understanding. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank you for the Holy Scriptures. We thank you that they tell us of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're given to make us wise unto salvation through faith in him. Lord, establish our faith and our hope and our love and our confidence in you and your purposes in this world. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.